coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn. This is 112BK. On the show today, remembering the early days of Trump's travel ban, and then looking ahead. Diverse voices in NYC media, and High Strung, a platform by women for women. Hi, and welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here today. I'm in a really good mood today. Except I saw this article in Mother Jones today about Twitter. Now, I love Twitter. And I love Twitter because Twitter has helped me connect to a community that when I didn't live in New York was really hard to connect to, the writing community. But you know who else loves Twitter? The Russian government and their trolls. A lot of ink has been spilled on this subject lately, but the Mother Jones piece reports on how the infiltration of Russian Twitter trolls, known as the Internet Research Agency, great name, by the way, was more widespread than previously believed, especially in the infiltration of progressive groups like Black Lives Matter. They, of course, would spread stories, sometimes fake, and stoke passions aiming to further polarize the debate and create discord inside the body politic here in the U.S., in the words of a former CIA officer. The bottom line is that we don't really know who's amongst us online, even if the beliefs expressed seem to align with our own. Who can you trust? I don't know. Probably nobody. And apparently, Twitter and Facebook less. Another recent article describes a different study, one that found trust in Twitter and Facebook is at an all-time low. If you can say all-time for something that's barely a decade old. I've been on Twitter since probably 2009, and it's a different Twitter today than it was before. But even I got one of those emails saying that I had interacted with a Russian troll, and it freaked me out a bit. Maybe we can pay a little bit more attention. Today, we've got a lawyer who was one of the first to arrive at JFK amidst the chaos unleashed by Travel Ban 1.0 just over a year ago. And we'll hear about amplifying diverse voices in NYC media. And later, a new platform for women who are done screaming into the void. But first, this stuff. Ravi Rockbeer, the Brooklyn immigrants' rights activist detained for deportation nearly three weeks ago, a move which sparked protests and led to the arrest of two city council members, was ordered released on Monday by a federal judge who called his mistreatment unnecessarily cruel. In her order, the judge also issued a stunning rebuke of the Trump administration, saying it ought not to be that those who have lived without incident in this country for years are subjected to treatment we associate with regimes we revile as unjust. We are not that country. And woe be the day that we become that country under a fiction that laws allow it. The Constitution commands better. Before Rockbeer was released, his wife, Amy Gottlieb, had been invited by Congresswoman Nydia Velasquez to attend the State of the Union speech. She was one of many from the administration's targeted populations invited to attend by various members of Congress, including members of the Me Too movement, Dreamers, and those here on what used to be temporary protected status. Will Trump say the State of the Union is strong? I'm betting yes, as he takes credit for economic progress set in motion by Obama, even as he tears at our own fabric day in and day out. Tell me if I was right and what you felt about the spectacle at 112BK comments at brickartsmedia.org. In other news closer to home, 
As we enter the height of flu season, there's a shortage of Tamiflu in Brooklyn. Local pharmacies say they've been without the medicine for weeks, sending concerned parents scrambling for alternatives to fight what has been a nasty virus this year, one that's killed more than 30 children nationwide so far, compared to 10 at this time last year. Lord help the babies. Get them Tamiflu. Finally, a new Whole Foods Market 365 is opening up in downtown, almost next door to Brick, the first 365 opening up on the East Coast. 365 is the Whole Foods brand, which apparently means lower prices. So it's no longer whole paycheck, maybe three quarters paycheck. Whatever it is, it will also feature a do-it-yourself tap wall for beer, wine, or cider. They're calling it Poor Authority. Yeah. That's, that's what they're calling it. Stay tuned for our first conversation. When the first travel ban went into effect on January 27th last year, our next guest, an immigration lawyer, thought she had time to develop a plan for how to push back. But less than 12 hours later, she was rushing to JFK Airport to try to assist detained travelers. She ended up overseeing an army of a thousand volunteers to help panicked families whose loved ones were stuck in limbo. JFK was also the site of one of the earliest and largest protests against what many have called Muslim Ban 1.0. That lawyer, Camille Mackler, is here to talk to us about that experience and about 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, Thanks for just joining us on 112BK, Camille. Thanks for having me. Can you start by just talking to me about how the immigration enforcement enforcement heightened under Donald Trump? Because I know quite a few people, whenever you bring up the travel ban, they say Obama was doing the exact same things and no one cared. So, you know, as someone who admittedly wasn't paying as close attention during the Obama presidency, I always want to know, is that the case? So I mean, he wasn't banning entire religions, right? right? He wasn't stoking fears or hatred or or anything like that. So I think in that sense, no. Mm -hmm. Was he was arresting a lot of people? You know, a lot of people were arrested. And obviously, the president wasn't in the streets himself doing it, but a lot of people were arrested under mm -hmm. Obama. And enforcement, immigration enforcement, was heightened under Obama. And I think the dysfunction of our immigration legal system was very much, I mean, it, it was a result of all of that, really, and it, it was definitely there. And so, yeah, when people say now, oh, you know, look at all this enforcement, you know, but don't you realize that it happened also under Obama? Yeah, I realize, mm -hmm. thanks. thanks for letting me know, you know. Right. We were kind of shouting from the rooftops back then, too. And nobody was hearing you. No, nobody, yeah, you know, it wasn't the issue that it is today, but the way it was done was different. Mm. Um, not that it was great. I certainly don't, ex you know, I, I don't, don't excuse it, and, and didn't agree with what was happening at the time, had mm -hmm. really serious issues with things that were happening at the time, but the Trump administration has taken it to a whole new level. Mm. And I don't think entire ethnicities, entire religious groups felt scared under Obama, felt targeted under Obama, um, felt unwelcome under Obama mm. the way they do under Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And what moved you to go to JFK right after the travel ban was signed? So, you know, I get that question a lot, and I 
There was no thought. It was mm. a reaction. It was our reaction. It was a really bad week. Right. Right. It was the first week of the demonization. It was a spectacularly bad week at work, following two and a half months of basically just holding our breaths and waiting to see what was happening, uh, following an exhausting campaign. I mean, there was just, there was no fuel left. There was no, the, the tank was empty. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I just, I, I, I had planned to take that weekend to recenter. I had planned to take that weekend to sort of like sit myself down and read through these executive orders and all three of them, right? Mm -hmm. um, didn't even really expect the, the last one, the travel ban at the end. I mean, knew it was coming, but didn't, right. by, by like 3 p.m. on Friday, and we were thinking, okay, he's leaving for Mar-a-Lago again. You know, this isn't going to happen until next week. And to find out at 5 that it was signed, to not even see it until 8, calling people in government that we knew and, and they hadn't seen it. Ooh. So when I woke up on Saturday morning and I saw people who were detained, I, I don't know, it was, just, it was just such a reaction to think, like, there, there has to be more than two people. This, this, this went into effect with people in, they, they were on the planes when it got signed. So it just was a reaction to go out there and see who else was affected and wow. did they need help. Wow. One of the things that I think people are trying to figure out, and certainly that I'm trying to figure out as well, is how has the ban actually changed from 1.0 to 3.0? It's... I mean, from 1.0 to 3.0, it's gotten refined in its scope, right? It added some countries, took out some countries. Not everybody from these countries are um, are banned, like certain visa holders. Their reasoning, I mean, the first ban, you can tell that that this administration got into office and thought they could do whatever they wanted and right. that they didn't answer to a law or a constitution that basically president and king supreme was the same thing right. and, and as as it didn't and i mean the fact that there's no typos in the first in the first order frankly is a little shocking to me because i can't right. imagine anybody reread it before they like you know, ripped it off the printer and put it out there. Right. The third ban is clearly mothed that out, more reasoned, more justified. Mm -hmm. The problem is you can't unring that bell. But at the end of the day, it's they're the same thing. Yeah. They're That's a Muslim ban. Like. Yeah, they're a Muslim ban, and and that is not what this country was set up to be. Right. <laughs> so. Can we go back really quickly to JFK? Yeah. Can you talk to me about what it was like in the days that you were going to the airport? every day because you went home at night to mm -hmm. be with your family um, but during the days when you were going there and you were you know sort of put into like the de facto leader of this group I mean what did that feel like in the moment I, there wasn't much time to stop and think about what it felt like. Right. There was just a lot to do. Um, when I So what happened is on Saturday, you know, the protests were growing. We were calling for lawyers. And so as I was heading out around 8 p.m., we set up, me and a couple of other people from the ACLU and the Urban Justice Center, we set up a couple of point people so that for lawyers showing up other night, mm -hmm. there'd be points of contact. And then I came back on Sunday, and there was just this crazy beehive of activity. It kind of was like a bad ER scene, like, you know, ER right. TV show and, like, everything's exploded and yep. triage is going crazy. That's sort of what it <laughs> yeah. I felt like, and, um, but with an Occupy Wall Street, nobody's in charge kind of vibe to it. Wow. So it was a little, it was a little chaotic. Um, it was very chaotic. And people, there were some people who were trying to sort of organize the information that we were getting, the effort that was happening, and they started walking away. You know, they had to go home at the end of the day. They were like, mm -hmm. you take it over, hand it over to somebody when you're ready to leave, but no one ever showed up. So as of Sunday night, I was sort of trying to put a system into place with the help of people. This is not me alone on a crusade. Right. Um, I called in some friends, I called in some coworkers, and then by, you know, over the days, we, we, we came up with a system. Like, we sort of, it stopped being like anybody who wants to shows up to volunteer sign up. 
you know, like there are roles, there are assignments, there's right. um, ways of communicating between those of us who are in Terminal 4 and those of us who are at the other terminals. Um, this is where our central command is, so that sort of stuff. And so we, we just kind of whittled at it. You know, some volunteers kind of became like the real key players. Um, who, who really helped impose organization. I formed a steering committee of, mm -hmm. of different nonprofits in New York City and, and others who I would get on a call with every night and we'd sort of like discuss direction because I was so tired, you know. Right. I couldn't think straight. Do you have, did you have any experience doing anything like that on that scale before? No, there's no law school class called how to run a law office out of an airport right. terminal. Or like <laughs> right. Out of some roadside diner. I assume um, not. So, no, but I, my job is to sort of support nonprofit legal service providers. So my mm -hmm. job is to support lawyers who provide services. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, I've never done disaster relief, I ne which I think is probably the most comparable situation. I've never done right. anything like that. Um, but I was surrounded, like I, one of the key volunteers that really stepped up, he had a lot of disaster relief experience. So, mm -hmm. it, you know, that sort of complemented each other. Like, I don't want people to think I was doing wow. this alone. Um, so we sort of all complemented each other. And we just all... We figured that out because we had to. I think somehow, I don't know how this came about, but we also knew that we were creating systems. We knew we would have to replicate moving yeah. forward. So that was always, from day one or day two, that was in our minds. Like That's we, important, and I think a yeah. lot of people don't think about that enough in the moment, um, especially when it comes to things like what is essentially disaster yeah. relief, even if it's in a legal capacity. Can I ask you really quickly before we run out of time, what are your concerns moving forward into 2018? I think my biggest concern is that this administration doesn't seem to care much for the rule of law. Mm. And so I'm kind of, it's not, you know, the system that we worked in, that the rules that we operate on, they've just been tossed out of the window. And and so I guess that scares me. And also mm. the way that they're manipulating the legal bench, right? We're not talking a lot about how they're getting all these, there's uh, court appointments through, they're appointing all these judges to all these courts around the country. So the intersection of those two things scares me right. for 2018 and beyond. Um, you know, I mean, this is now going to the Supreme Court and they got right. that seat whatever you think of how they got that seat, they got that seat filled by Neil Gorsuch. Right. So that scares me, but what I look forward to is that um, we're still standing and we're still fighting and we're not giving up. And I think a year ago, my biggest fear was that we would give up. By That's, this time, mm -hmm. and we haven't, and there's still more to do. Exactly. Thank you so much for your time and for being here. I'd love to have you back sometime soon. Yeah, absolutely, thanks so much for having me. Thank you. If you're new to America, or if English isn't your first language, you're likely feeling a bit unsettled these days, and perhaps feeling that your voice and your perspective are not being adequately reflected in the national conversation. But Voices of NY seeks to change that. They're providing media training to diverse groups in the city in order to help them tell their stories and communicate their concerns to a more mainstream audience. Here to tell us about that is Jahangir Katak the organization's co-director. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so, for, uh, so much for having me. I'm so happy to have you. Can you really quickly just tell me what is Voices of NY? Uh, I think one clarification that mm -hmm. I want to make is that our organization's name is Center for Community and Ethnic Media. Okay. Voicesofny.org is one of our projects. In fact, it is our flagship project. Mm -hmm. where we basically showcase the best of the journalistic work that is produced by this uh, media sector. Oh, wow. And besides that, the center was uh, approved by the uh, CUNY board 
in uh, the fall of 2012. Wow. And we have been working basically in five major areas. Besides uh, Voices of NY.org, mm -hmm. uh, we also have an annual journalism award, which is, we call IPPIS Journalism Awards, mm -hmm. which we have been giving for the past 15 years. Wow. Uh, and, uh, and besides that, we have uh, an extensive training program. Uh, in fact, the mayor's office of media and entertainment mm -hmm. uh, gave us a million dollar grant in 2016. Uh, for digital uh, journalism trainings. Wow. Uh, we have been doing that, and besides that, we have a newsmakers series mm -hmm. where uh, New York One's political anchor, who also teaches journalism at the J School, Errol Lewis, uh, he hosts those uh, events. And the way we have designed it is that we pick two journalists from the community and ethnic media who mm -hmm. join Errol on a panel, and the idea is to give them training as well, where wow. they get uh, the opportunity to work with a very seasoned uh, journalist uh, and a great interviewer. And uh, they prepare themselves uh, for our guests, who are usually the political, like the public officials, uh, different commissioners and uh, public officials of the New York City and state. This sounds amazing. Yes, it is. And then we also uh, do a lot of uh, uh, this Newsmaker series. Idea behind it is to <laughs> Uh, to, to bring uh, these communities mm -hmm. more into the mainstream by creating more uh, civic engagement. Talk to me about that, because I'm really wondering how you guys connect and integrate ethnic communities with the mainstream. How do you do that? Well, we, we actually don't do it, but we do try to uh, help this media mm. to do the work that they are doing. I think they are doing a great work. In Metro New York region, we don't have the exact numbers, but we feel that there are uh, we estimate, not feel, we estimate mm -hmm. that there are at least uh, 300 plus publications based wow. in the Metro New York region, which are serving different um, communities mm -hmm. and different uh, geographical uh, regions and neighborhoods. And, and these publications are uh, serving as a very critical link mm -hmm. between the mainstream and the community. Absolutely. So and, where do you find your journalists? Like, where do you find the people who then write these things, or at least for Voices of NY? Well, uh, the way Voices has traditionally worked, because Voices has an interesting history. Mm -hmm. It was launched by an organization called Independent Press Association in 2001. After 9-11, that organization at that time thought that there is a need for a, an online platform where they can showcase some of the conversation that is going on within the uh, Muslim communities across mm -hmm. the city. And uh, they did that in the first issue. Mm -hmm. uh, it was an online issue where they would pick stories from the newspapers which were focused or serving the Muslim community. Wow. Uh, but later on, they expanded their thought that we let's not limit it to one particular community. Mm -hmm. And they included everyone. And that's how Voices was born. And then in 2011, the, in 2007, IPA was reorganized and it became New York Community Media Alliance. Mm -hmm. And in 2011, New York Community Media Alliance had to close its doors right. because of some funding issues. Right. And at that time, it was the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism and our current dean, Sarah Bartlett, who thought that we should bring these programs, at least we should salvage two of their uh, you know, flagship projects, uh, wow. The Voices and the IPPIS Journalism Awards. And, and, and that's and what we have been doing. Uh, journalists from the community and ethnic media. And we have a really large 
like this is a very uneven landscape mm -hmm. where you will see newspapers where, which may have like a uh, uh, lot of uh, reporters mm -hmm. uh, you know they may have beat reporting right. and then there are newspapers where and they are major in majority where one person may be wearing all possible hats that wow. you can think of a, a, in a newspaper so it's a wow. pretty uneven and that's why we are trying to help this media to write more about their own neighborhoods, about right. their own communities, create the stakes that they already have, just bring them into limelight and energize them to be part of the greater conversation that's happening in our city. Okay. Now, there was a big meeting in 2016 about ethnic media in New York where some decisions were made about what should happen moving forward. Were you part of that? And what have we seen since then? Well, I was not part of that, mm -hmm. but I think overall uh, there has been a lot of interest, uh, you know, at the city level as well. Right. When the mayor uh, was a candidate, Bill de Blasio as a candidate, mm -hmm. we had invited him to our newsmaker series in 2013. Right. And at that time, he had promised that if he is elected, he would look into it because one common complaint that we hear from this media is that they don't get enough advertisements from the city agencies and departments. Right. And at that time, the mayor had promised that he will do it. And in 2013, before the elections, our uh, current dean, Sarah Bartlett, wrote a white paper mm -hmm. where it was a research paper where she found that basically more than 80% of the advertisements, like New York City, on the average, about spend about uh, 17, 18 million dollars right. on the advertising. Mm -hmm. And 80% or more of of more than that was going to the mainstream newspapers. Mm. And if you look at the combined circulation of this community and ethnic media in New York City, it is greater than the combined circulation of the major newspapers in this region. So, so we had a very strong case that we don't want to go or step on anybody's toe, mm -hmm. but we just want to make sure that if you want to bring these communities out of the shadows, if you want to bring this community to be part of the mainstream, mm -hmm. then you have to uh, empower this media. Because yes, remember that in a city of 8.7 million people, 1.8 million New Yorkers have little or no English language skills, yes. which means that their primary source of information is their own media. Right. So if their own media is not reporting on local issues, why do you expect that they will be involved more at the, so their civic engagement will always be low. They may not be politically that active. But if you uh, empower this media, mm -hmm. make it more sustainable, you are bring, basically empowering those communities which are you know, on the sides, on the sidelines. So that's what we have been trying. We feel that if you have more reporting, you have better reporting, mm -hmm. quality reporting, and more local coverage, that can really, uh, you know, the stakes are already there for everyone, Absolutely. but many people realize it, many people realize it, but still may be lazy or may not know what to do. Mm -hmm. So this media can really play that role. Well, you know, until we give them what they need and have, make sure they have access to information that they need, then we won't know if they're just being lazy. Like, at this point, a lot of people are uninformed, as you that said, because the, because the integration hasn't happened, but you guys are doing that work. Yes. Thank you so much for being Thank here so and for having, for having this conversation. Hope to have you back sometime Thank soon. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Has life ever pushed you to a point where you just want to scream and let it all out? But scream at what? And who exactly? A group of Brooklyn-based women have come up with their own solution and want to share it with you. It's an online platform called High Strung, and here to share it with us is co-founder Frida Oscarsdaughter. 
Thanks for coming on to 112 BK, Frida. Thank you so much for having me. So first of all, can I just say that um, it was described to me, High Strong, the site, as a mix of like, if Jezebel and the Skim had a baby in Brooklyn. Oh my God. Okay, well we might have to brand that because that's yeah. a really wonderful <laughs> description. Um, yeah, I think High Strung really, you know, it's so fun to talk about it in a conversational style because I have a hard time, you know, describing it in one way. Um, right. We're a group of women. A lot of us come from a background where we have a lot of experience writing, editing. Oh yeah, I noticed. We love to think, we love to talk. Um, mm -hmm. We kind of got together and decided to, to put that to, you know, to put our creative powers together to make something that was both a creative outlet for us, mm -hmm. hopefully something that people enjoy reading. Mm -hmm. As you said, we're all women um, and we want to share our stories. We want to share stories that inspire us. Mm -hmm. um, and this is kind of our, our baby. This is our side hustle. We all have full-time jobs. Um, we want to motivate each other. We want to come together and write about things that we talk about in our everyday lives. You know, sometimes right. you want to contribute to the conversation by talking about politics. Sometimes you're like, that's the last thing I want to talk yes. about. <laughs> I want to draw some funny pictures. I want to make right. a crossword. I want to write about a movie I loved 10 years ago. What's going mm -hmm. on with that? You know, just things that, um, you know, are maybe not so easy to categorize in one way, but that we, we want to share. And they come up naturally. Exactly. So, of course, there are going to be people who are like, okay, another woman's-based website, okay, let's, <laughs> let's see what happens here. But right. the high, high Strung seems different to me. There's something a little, like, I don't know how to express it except in my mind. It's like purposefully small. Yeah, that is. But such, yeah, what? Tell me your idea, though. I don't want to just talk about I what like I think. I like that. About it. Well, no, I love to hear feedback about it. I think you're exactly right. We do keep it small because we know what it's like to, you know, maybe write for someone else. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're doing it. You're getting paid. That's that's always it's important. Um, we wanted to keep it so that we don't currently take contributions from other people, although right. eventually we would love to, because we don't pay ourselves. Mm -hmm. We don't get paid. This isn't something that is like a big scalable operation because so many people do that so well already. Right. Um, we read the news every day. We're not a breaking news organization. You right. know, we're, we're writing about things that are meaningful to us that are also universal. Mm -hmm. And I think you're exactly right that it's purposefully small because we want to be able to manage it. I mean, we we get so much out of it. This is a group of five women. We meet every other week. We talk every day. We brainstorm. We pitch. We manage the website. We send out the newsletter. We design all of the Ooh. art. So it's in house. You <laughs> yes. guys are doing it all together. Yeah. Who are you trying to reach? <sighs> that is a great question. We want to reach everybody. Yeah. We, I mean, our, our original tagline was stories from and for hysterical women. Not in the <laughs> sense necessarily that it's all funny. Of course it isn't. Right. But just kind of that idea that when women talk or have a voice, they're often seen as mm -hmm. loud or too much or too big. And we want to kind of embrace that and also get away from just that there is only one way to, to be. To be, exactly. To be. Yeah. Now, in your bio, you say 
yourself, you refer to yourself <laughs> as shrill. Yeah. Talk to me about that. So I love shrill, the word. Um, shout out to Lindy West, her wonderful book, Shrill. Yes, that, that's what favorites. I thought of as yeah, soon as I read Yeah, of course. And that's just one of these terms, like a very gendered term. When we were doing mm -hmm. our bios, we wanted to kind of nod and wink at the ways that women are described a lot of the right. ways. So we have like bossy, shrill, you know, talkative, all of these like little words. And we want to kind of embrace that because I feel like when we have conversations together, when these women that I work with, if we're out at a bar, at a coffee shop, if we're at our apartments, we're talking, mm -hmm. those are conversations that I want to be a part of. Like I want to be a part of a conversation about women who like to read, who like to think, who like to watch TV, who like to talk, um, you know, and, and that's just what we want to contribute to. Right. And when you talk about, you know, like another women's platform, I don't think there's enough, you know? Right. Like, when is there ever going to be enough? And I hope that we, because we're not only political, because we're not only about, you know, women's issues, but, mm -hmm. you know, we just happen to all be women, um, that there is a space for us. Right. And it's highstrong.co. Exactly right. Yes. Highstrong.co. Thank you so much for being here with me, Frida. Thank you, I Ashley. love talking about it, and maybe we'll have you back soon to talk about some of the cool stories you guys are publishing. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for joining us today. Tomorrow on the show, an update on Puerto Rico's recovery after Maria, New York State's one and only milk bank, and Desmond is amazing. You'll have to come back to see what I mean. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hagasak, Antonio Rosario, and our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.